Hello. So there are thousands and thousands of dams in Connecticut, but many of them are so baked into the landscape that you probably don't notice them, even if you see them. Um, and you probably also can't imagine what the landscape would be like if the dam weren't there. You probably don't realize that that pond that is ponded up behind the dam is the result of a dam. So we're going to talk about all that today. We're going to also talk about how there's still the potential, more than just potential, for getting electricity out of certain dams. We'll talk about their effect on fish, all kinds of stuff like that. So we're going to begin a little bit unusually for us. Uh, last week, Betsy Kaplan, producer Betsy Kaplan, said, I want to go out and learn more about dams, go out on the field, visit some places where there have been dams. And I said, that's very hazardous, could be very dangerous. I showed her the clip from Chinatown. Uh, I showed her disaster movies. I said, I can't have you out there going around looking at dams, send an inter intern, that's what they're for. Uh, but she insisted on going herself, uh, not just by herself, though. She was actually joined by one of our guests today. You're also here in this clip, uh, Steve Gephardt, supervising fisheries biologist for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, otherwise known as Deep uh, Fisheries Division. All right, so let's hear uh, Betsy's adventure. I visited Ed Bills Pond on the east branch of the Eight Mile River in Lyme, Connecticut last week to learn how the removal of one Connecticut dam changed life in and around this waterway. The Eight Mile flows through Lyme and joins the Connecticut River at Hamburg Cove, eight miles upriver from the Long Island Sound. Here in Lyme on the east branch, this always has been a babbling trout stream. Steve Gephardt showed me around. He's worked on Connecticut dam projects at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection for over 35 years. But we built this dam and turned a section of that stream from a babbling trout stream into a quiescent pond with lily pads that was more suitable for pickerel frogs and bullheads. And it also filled with mud and leaves and not much was actually living in here when we drained it. The dam that had been there since the 1930s was removed a few years ago, returning it to the gently flowing stream Connecticut's earliest colonists would have seen when they arrived here in the 1600s. Today, the stream's cool, clear water flows over lots of different sized rocks, and there's vegetation regrowing along the banks. It was hard for me to envision the massive pond that once filled the land where we were currently standing. Look at the bathtub ring there. See that line? right along there. Oh, yeah. That was where the water level was all the way along and so all of this would have been underwater. If you look over there um, you'll see that the sun is shining on some very bright green trees in the distance. The pond extended right around the corner beyond those bright green trees and so this whole area was an expanse of, of pond water. There are over 4,000 dams in Connecticut the earliest ones built in the 1600s to harness water power for Connecticut's earliest industries, like grain, paper, and wood mills. While most of these dams no longer drive our modern economy, they remain a symbol of Yankee ingenuity and a nostalgic reminder of where we started. About 80% of Connecticut dams are on land that's privately owned. The remaining dams are on land owned by public municipalities, nonprofits, and about 200 located in state parks and forests are managed by DEEP. Many of these dams and the recreational areas that grow up around them seep into the collective memories of a community. As we're standing, looking down at where the dam used to be, there's this very prominent rock. Mm -hmm. And you can see by the coloration, the downstream side is dark and weathered, the upstream side is white. The dam used to go right across that huge boulder. In the summer, when people were here swimming and fishing, there was just a little bit of water that 
cascaded down and, and spilled on that rock. And people used to sit on that rock and it was called kissing rock. <laughs> and I suspect that many people got their first kiss on that rock. And so there's sentimental attachment. And, and one of the things we were asked when we uh, were working with the dam owner to remove the dam, you're not gonna d destroy kissing rock, are you? But these old stone and earth dams can also wreak havoc on the streams they block. They threaten migratory fish and plant life, trap contaminants left from the industries they once powered, and pose a safety hazard to the people and property that abut them. The Inland Water Resources Division of DEEP is responsible for enforcing Connecticut's dam safety laws. Those deemed unsafe must be repaired by the owner or removed. Steve spends time with owners to explain the benefits of removing a dam. He says more often than not, apprehension gives way to pleasant surprise at the beauty of a stream's return to its natural state. Ed Bill Pond, it was named after the man who built uh, the dam, or at least rebuilt the dam in the 1930s. And this land had been in the Bill family for many generations, and it's still owned by Ed Bill's grandson. And so the decision to remove this dam was not entered into lightly. The grandson swam and fished in this pond and loved it. Some dams in Connecticut still play a vital role in hydropower, flood control, water supply, and mitigating runoff caused by development. Steve says others should come down to restore the vibrant native plant and fish life that existed in Connecticut rivers and streams before the dams. This was a pond for over a hundred years. It's only been a free-flowing stream again now for a couple of years. And every time I'm here, I'm seeing an evolution and maturity of the habitat. Those cattails over there were not here last time I was here. Um, those are a native wetland plant that is reestablishing it. And the other thing that you can't see is underwater. There's loads of native stream fish in here now, including trout. But the other thing is the, the rocks and the substrate itself, how, how clean and natural it is, how quickly the river will recover if you give it a chance. All right, that's Betsy Kaplan out in the field. Uh, she returned fine and nothing bad happened. So um, let me tell you who else is here. Well, first of all, you heard in that uh, feature, as I mentioned before, Steve Gephardt, supervising fisheries biologist for Deep Fisheries uh, Division, uh, also in studio, Howard Epstein. Uh, this show was very much his idea. He's done things with us before. Emeritus professor in civil and environmental engineering at UConn. And Art Christian, supervising civil engineer, Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Dam Safety Unit. So um, Steve, Gephardt, uh, in that clip, your prejudices are very much uh, on display. Uh, most of the time, you'd probably rather not see dams there. Um, and, but there's something about, particularly the European settler in the New World, and especially in the 18th century, right? they couldn't help themselves. They saw a river, they wanted to dam it up. Well, I think that the dams were inevitable for the development of this land. Um, the only thing that we can be sorry about is that we didn't have the technology back then to mitigate for some of the environmental impacts. And also, as time went on and these dams became obsolete, we didn't deal with them along the way. So now, here we are many years later, and of those 4,000 dams you mentioned, a whole bunch of them are abandoned and deadbeat, and they're going to be problems. Certainly not all of the, pro the dams are problems, 
but some of the dams are problems. Um, Howard Epstein, it might be worthwhile just to kind of define our terms. I think when people hear dam, they either think about beavers or they think about the Hoover Dam, and they don't think about the vast middle ground in between those two uh, extremes, right? There's a lot of things that can be a dam. Well, absolutely, almost anything that holds back water. But if, if I may, the reason that I suggested the show as you know, I'm a structural engineer, but uh, I've been supervising senior design projects at UConn for a number of years, and love the ones especially, we, we do all real-world kinds of situations. The ones that uh, help out towns, municipalities, nonprofits, etc. And last year, I was approached by some people from the town of Manchester, uh, private nonprofits who owned a couple of dams, and they said they were confronted with the fact that they had to, uh, because of deep regu regulations that went into effect a couple of years ago, um, not only inspect their dams periodically, um, but also uh, form a, um, a breach study and an emergency action plan for the town. And that's how we got involved with this. And once I saw what the deep regulations were all about, I was just amazed at the number of dams. And um, by the way, you're going to have a larger audience than usual because we've informed all the building inspectors and town engineers around the state um, of the show today. We've been going after that demographic for a really long time. <laughs> um, Art Christian, yeah. you know, um, uh, uh, Howard's talking about sort of basically emergencies. And a lot of times, and it's nice to hear that some prophylactic considerations are being made at this moment. Usually, we start talking about dams when something horrible has happened. So 1963 uh, in Norwich, you have a dam that bursts. Six, I think six people die. It goes right into Norwich uh, and right into Franklin Square and all, all that kind of stuff. Six people die. And at that point, people start wondering, I think, like, how many dams do we really have here? Yeah. Yeah. And in 1963, right after that, um, the legislature got back together and they said, you know what? We have to start keeping track of our dams. We have to know how many there are. And there was a big influx of, of some money and also of, of bodies. And for the next three years, they went around and looked at every water body in the state, walked around the whole perimeter of it and decided whether it was a dam, whether it was a pond or a natural pond, you know, dug, um, and then measured it up to see how high it was and, and how tall it was. Um, and also set a hazard category for it at that point. Um, what could happen if it were to fail, hypothetically? So, uh, or you say, walk around and decide whether there's a dam. That might sound to some people l like an odd thing to be wondering about. But some of these dams really are kind of baked into the landscape, right? They're not big concrete structures or anything like that. They really are. I remember uh, in 1984, we, we sent out letters to tell people because we had a new registration program. We wanted to update all the uh, inventory from the 1960s. And we sent out registrations to people. And we got a whole bunch of calls. And I remember this one woman saying, I don't have a dam on my property. I have an eight-foot waterfall. And um, and really, you know, mo there's there's a few waterfalls in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're, the chances of her having an eight-foot waterfall in her backyard right you know where we thought there was a dam was pretty, uh, pretty remote. Right. So these things are they're maybe almost a little bit closer to what beavers do than what we we do when we build a modern dam. Right. They're stone. They're earth. A lot of stuff kind of wedged together. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and actually, even the spillways look kind of natural. Um, and that's and and, it, and if they're not maintained, you really almost can't tell they're there. So, um, Steve, um, I think the first uh, dam uh, across the Connecticut River, 1798, I think that's Turner's Falls. And, and in a way, uh, I mean, one of your big concerns is fish. 
stuff has never really been the same for fish probably since then, right? I mean, there are certain fish and eels that want to go up the Connecticut River, and the minute you build a dam there, it gets very complicated. Yeah, you know, that dam was the engineering marvel of the world at the time, probably the one of the largest dams built at the time. And at that time, uh, we still had Atlantic salmon coming in the river and spawning up in Vermont, New Hampshire, and that wiped out the run. And after that, we started building lots of other dams. Holyoke Dam was built after that, a dam in Enfield, et cetera. And from, um, from the fish's point of view, yes, it was all downhill from there because a lot of these native fish runs that we have, we call them diadromous, the ones that come back and forth between the ocean, need to get inland to access spawning and rearing habitat, and these dams block their way. And so... Uh, fast forward to, you know, the 1970s, we now have just little fragments of these runs clustered at the bottom of the first dam in areas where there's still some habitat. And so uh, part of our job in the department has been to get fish around these dams so we can start restoring these native fish runs. Right. We're going to talk more about that. Although the fish the poor fish have been screwed six ways to Sunday, too, because, I mean, not only did that, we do that, but then later we started building nuclear power plants that warm up the water, which knocks off the, the, the clock or the cycle of these fish, right? Well, that certainly is a potential. Our, our big, um, the big one that was sort of the pioneer in Connecticut on the uh, Haddam, Connecticut Yankee, Studies showed that, well, you know, something, it wasn't so bad because the fish swam underneath the hot water, um, but they couldn't swim over, you know, even a 12-foot dam, much less a 35-foot dam. So, Art, these, some of these dams are the kinds that the lady who owns the property doesn't even, they don't even know that they're there. They think they have a waterfall. They think they have this cool little pond. Um, but some of the other dams that make up the Connecticut landscape are demonstrably left over from 19th century business, right? I mean, whether it's paper mills or twine or cotton or, or ivory, I mean, basically people needed to turn wheels. Yeah, definitely. Um, it comes to mind, there's 100 dams in Greenwich. That's the town that has the most dams. And some of that was it had rocky terrain and it had uh, long reaches and there was eight, ten dams in a row, um, each of them with a mill on it. And, and now all those mills have been bought out and, and there's houses on each of them. So those people did know they were buying a dam, um, but uh, but they still didn't know what could happen if the dam failed and, and how much hazard um, and how much liability they, they brought upon themselves by buying that dam. So, Howard, uh, you know, after 1963, uh, Deep or its predecessor starts counting up dams. Um, they get 3,500. We can now add 500 more or so into that. It's a lot of dams for a little tiny state. I assume that's partly because our terrain varies. In other words, you have a big flat state. Probably, you know, you don't have too many dams in, in a Midwestern state where the terrain doesn't undulate very much. Absolutely. And I've been told that Connecticut per um, square mile has the most dams in the country. I mean, when I looked at the map, I was astonished. 4,000 dams in this little state, mm -hmm. um, out of which some of which uh, you would never know that they were there, but there are uh, several major ones that could potentially uh, cause some problems, uh, um, almost like 600, I think, that are class uh, B and C. What is class B? That sounds ominous, B and C. <laughs> well, actually, um, A is uh, not much of a problem because uh, the classification of dams and Art can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, is not necessarily by the, uh, the size of the impoundment, but by the potential hazard that it would cause if it failed. 
Right. So if, yeah. is that right, Art? If you yes. get a grade A dam, you can sleep easy. Yeah. Yeah. Those actually are. are there's a synonym we use as uh, a low hazard dam, and so those those B's and C's that Howard was talking about um, are high hazard dams for C's and significant hazard dams for for uh, B dams. Right. So now that we've got you somewhat nervous, we're going to take a break. When we come back, all three of our guests are going to talk about a little bit more about these hazards, but also one of some of the other reasons why you might want to get rid of dams. Some In the final segment, we'll talk about some reasons why you might want to keep certain dams. She's gone, she's gone. I hate to be alone. When the dam breaks, the water will roll. Welcome back to our damn show. I mean, not our damn show, but our damn show. Uh, Steve, uh, Stephen Gephardt, a supervising fisheries biologist for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, Deep uh, Fisheries Division, is with us. So is Howard Epstein, Emeritus Professor in Civil and Environmental Engineering at UConn. Art Christian, Supervising Civil Engineer, Connecticut Department, well, Deep, again, Deep, uh, Dam Safety Unit. So um, during the break, Howard just handed me um, a sheet of paper about how to inspect your dams. I had no idea that dams had groins, but the uh, dam has a groin. Apparently, it's a, a groin right there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Art, did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I did. It's 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 where it meets the natural ground on the sides of it when it's constructed. All right. So, so um, Howard, without uh, terrifying people unnecessarily, um, uh, tell us why uh, or what could happen to a dam. In other words, what are the signs? This is actually on the sheet that you just gave me. The signs that could suggest that a dam might be in one of these kind of high hazard categories. Well, one of the major problems that can happen to a dam is if um, spillway is inadequate for whatever reason and it overtops. Um, the dams we're talking about primarily are earthen dams. Uh, the concrete dams usually wouldn't present that much of a problem if they were designed properly. Um, but when they overtop, then they start to erode, and then obviously that can take out a whole uh, chunk of the top of the dam and lead to all sorts of problems uh, downstream. But animals bur burrowing through them, um, uh, the spillways not acting correctly or inadequate spillways, the, there's lots of things that need to be looked at and inspected periodically. See, no, Art, I think earthen dam or, or something like that, and I think yeah. enchanting little mill pond. Is, is there, are there places where a lot of water is backed up behind one of these more antiquated dams? Oh, oh definitely. So, so the mill ponds, there's a, kind of two classifications. One of them is the mill ponds along the rivers, which don't have much of an impoundment. And I looked at looking at the maps of the topography maps in the late 1800s, there was one section. I can't call it a flight because there was no flying involved, um, but it'd be like an aerial flight. Um, but in that, there really are no big ponds. Um, all the dams are dammed up rivers. Um, and, and, and because the uh, they didn't spread out that much. They kind of stayed in bank. They're almost there's something we call run of river, where basically there's no storage. Um, it wasn't until uh, later, you know, when they started uh, trying to store water for uh, both hydropower and um, water, um, drinking water, and for aesthetics, you know, um, uh, recreation, right. that they started making these big impoundments. Right. So there's like a big dam that creates uh, Lake Zor, mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a bridge that goes across it that connects Oxford and Monroe. Yep. Yeah. I think so too, yeah. And there's a whole rumor there's a dead body inside the dam. But there isn't. <laughs> there, there's no dead body inside the dam. There's just some guy who punched in but didn't punch out. Um, he just took off, something like that. So, um, so uh, Howard, one of the concerns that we have 
uh, in certain situations, you know, maybe there's not a huge amount of water backed up behind the dam, but there's the so-called cascading catastrophic failure, right, where the water, you know, uh, overtops one dam, runs down to the next dam, boom, uh, gets past that dam. I mean, you you could really have something that really builds up as it heads down to its ultimate destination. Uh, one of the uh, towns that engaged us this semester is. Uh Stafford Springs, and that's exactly the scenario that they were afraid of. Um, there's a chain of uh, five of these dams in a row, and when the first one goes, it's very likely that the next ones will go, and downtown Stafford Springs will no longer be dry. Which is what happened in Essex in 1982. Right. There was, there was like two, two dams. Were there more than two dams that time? Oh, yeah. Oh, a bunch of them, yeah. Oh, yeah. It started up at Bushy Hill right. and came all the way down. down Clark down Pond to, and all that stuff, right? Yes, yeah. and into uh, Centerbrook. Right. Um, all right. Well, uh, first of all, if you live in Stafford Springs, you might want to just, I don't know, pour yourself a shot of whiskey or take a, the benzodiazepam or something because uh, joining us now, no, he's, we're not going to make you worry. But here's Dennis from Stafford Springs, who I believe is the town engineer from Stafford Springs. Hi, Dennis. Yeah, hi, Colin. How are you? Uh, so you're listening to this conversation. Is there a specific thing that you, you would like to add to it? Uh, no, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all about, um, uh, you know, geography and geometry. And, uh, you know, Mike is, you know, what keeps me up at night is, uh, you know, if the, if, if the top one goes, you know, it's going to take them all with them. But it, it's not a matter of, of, uh, of just failure. It's a matter of erosion. Well, some of these are, have got, they're earthen dams. And when we talk about overtopping them, um, it's not like the things are going to collapse as much as they're going to fall apart, uh, much like uh, they did in the, in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the one out west in, um, um, the Cascades, but, uh, oh, was it? Lord but anyway, yeah, but, uh, yeah, they're going to, they're just going to, they're just going to erode apart. You know, the, 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 the sidewalls are going to fall apart and the whole thing falls down. All right. That should help people in Stafford Springs relax a lot uh, hearing that. So, um, so Art, the good news is the deep has a dam safety unit. The bad news is yeah. there's 4,000 dams. I don't know. We're in a budget cutting time. Like, can you, can you guys like keep up with all this? Do you, I mean, this... uh, so one of the things we did at, uh, Three or four years ago, the legislature did it actually, you know, with a little bit of prompting from us, is change the um, – instead of DEP doing D- – DEP at the time, then DEEP, um, doing all the inspections ourselves and billing uh, the dam owners, um, we changed it over to be a, a owner-responsible inspection program. So we now we tell the owners that it's time to inspect their dam and they need to go hire somebody and, and, and get that inspection done. Um, so we put the burden for the actual – to make sure the inspections got done uh, back where – Kind of it belongs on the dam owner um, who is always was always liable for for the dam. Right. I so. mean, a lot of them when they bought their property didn't maybe get that or even know that they had a dam. Yeah. But now it's their responsibility, comma in case you kill everybody. Period. So, um, so Steve, I mean, another possibility here that was would probably be kind of intriguing to you is to not have so many dams. In other words, if you've got five dams that could go boom, 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 boom in, in a, a catastrophic cascade, uh, one possibility would be to have fewer dams? Yes. And in fact, th- there's quite a dam removal movement going on right now, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And I have to say, Connecticut is a leader in this. Um, there's a number of states, Pennsylvania, um, Massachusetts, uh, Maine, but uh, Connecticut's been removing a lot of dams too. And when I say Connecticut, I don't mean just 
our agency, but we work closely with um, NGO uh, nonprofits. Nature Conservancy is a leader in dam removal, um, Save the Sound, watershed groups like the Farmington River Watershed Council or Association, rather, and uh, land trusts. And so what has been happening is we've worked with um, a number of these groups, particularly the Nature Conservancy, in prioritizing dams um, in, in Connecticut in which we look at it not only from a hazard point of view, although that's really art's job, not ours, but we look at it from an environmental impact point of view in and particularly in terms of the benefits that would be realized uh, to migratory fish. And so we can look at all that, target certain dams that if we remove this dam, we might get 17 miles, which is what happened in Colchester recently, 17 miles of upstream habitat gets reconnected. And then we work with the, uh, in that case, that was a Nature Conservancy um, project um, uh, run by Sally Harold. And that opened up, she applied for grants, she got grants, federal grants to help with it, and uh, those dams were removed. So we need more of that. Again, we're not looking to remove all the dams in the world, but by being strategic, we can um, realize some great environmental benefits. You know, so, Steve, some people are listening are probably thinking, I don't know how many people would be thinking this, but I thought you had fish ladders or eel ladders or things like that. I thought the fish were just fine climbing up those ladders. Well, we do. We, we have probably the third most uh, fishways on the East Coast. We have over 65 fishways and a whole bunch of eel passes. But there's limitations to those. First of all, even a good fishway sometimes targets only the stronger swimming fish. And so um, salmon and shad and trout seem to, and in some cases, alewives seem to do well with those fishways, but other species, uh, particularly the smaller species, don't do so well. Furthermore, if you build a fishway around a dam, you have addressed that one environmental issue, which is fish passage. Whereas, the dam has lots of other environmental impacts, the disruption of sediment transport, it warms the water, it, it changes the habitat from one type to another, it introduces habitat that non-native invasive species tend to favor. And so if you're able to remove the dam, you address all of those issues at once. Right. In that uh, tape we heard at the beginning with you and Betsy Kaplan, you're talking about cattails and things like that coming back. Absolutely. And it, so it is more than just fish. I'm a fish guy, so the fish thing excites me. But, you know, uh, returning uh, mussels, freshwater mussels, some of which are listed under our Endangered Species Act um, and all sorts of other native plants and animals. Right. So we want the muscles that we want, not the zebra muscles that we don't want. The zebra muscles You're can there. Absolutely zebra right. Are terrifying. Yeah, I'm a fish I guy. I hear they taste good, but no, maybe. Yeah. Um, they taste like zebra to me. Um, I suppose. No, I'm a fish guy too, and periodically, not every year, I'll actually dress up as a shad and swim up the river with them. And one thing I think I've seen you. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that I I found out is that, for example, in 2015, only 14 percent of the shad that got past the Holyoke Dam made it to the Turner's Fall Dam. Right? There's some way in which they start stalling out, even if the passages are ladders are there. Yeah, absolutely. We've had real problems with the, the three fishways at Turner's Falls. And just as an aside, you'll be happy to know that Turner's Falls is going under relicensing and we working with the feds are going to make sure that those uh, problems are addressed. But meanwhile, the next d dam up uh, at Vernon is passing a lot of the shed. So there's bright spots and then there's low spots. But one of the things I'll emphasize, if you 
retain the dam and build a fishway, you then have to uh, maintain that dam and fishway forever. And, and that's costly with a lot of money. And if, if you're first light or TransCanada and you're making a lot of money off that dam, eh, maybe that's worth it. But if you're a local landowner and you're not making money off your dam and you've got to spend a quarter of a million dollars fixing your dam and then you've got to spend maybe a half a million dollars building a fishway and then you've got to do this all over, you know, maintain it, maybe that cost uh, formula just isn't that attractive. So, Howard, we've been talking about all these dams, these 4,000 or so dams. Now, the reality is Bitsy Kaplan went out and looked at all 4,000 of them. 277, I think, fit into the so-called Class C high hazard dam category. What does that mean to you as an engineer? Fix that dam tomorrow or inspect it on a more, on a tighter cycle? Well, it means the same to DEAP. They inspect them at a uh, tighter cycle, as you say. But... um, also, the, um, the necessity of doing the emergency action plans, um, which means you have to assume that you're in the 100-year storm, which seems to occur every five years now, mm-hmm. and, um, and the, all that water is there, and that's, that presents a flood problem in itself. But on top of that, now what happens if the dam would fail in a catastrophic event? Um, how quickly, where does the water go downstream? And that's a heavy engineering study to determine that and to alert the towns and, and maybe have them do periodic um, uh, exercises to make sure that everybody knows who to call and what to do if, uh, if that should ever happen. Um, so, so, yeah, yeah. Oh, but actually, Art, uh, yeah, hold the okay. thought for a second. I just, because Dennis, uh, Dennis, you still there? Dennis from Stafford Springs? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. So, w- what do you guys do about this? This sounds like maybe something you, you really should uh, uh, talk about among yourselves there in Stafford Springs. Well, it is. The, the dams don't, it doesn't occur, you know, uh, in, a, in a heartbeat. Uh, what happens is, uh, what, what we want to know is what kind of rainfall at what kind of rate is going to create what kind of runoff, which creates what kind of backup which creates when does the dam fall apart? And right. when does the dam become ineffective? So there's a, there's a math calculation here based on, on rainfall and, and, uh, uh, and, and runoff and, and how much the dam is going to collect from its tributary area that, that, ca- that you have to worry about. A few years ago, you know, when a hurricane, was, when a hurricane came up, the, came up the, uh, the, uh, the sound, we were, you know, that was the question I was trying to answer out of, out of the records, you know, that, that we had. Um, and you've got a few days to try and figure that out. But you want to get to that point. You don't want to be, you know, scratching for that number before it happens. Right. No, I don't think you want to even take a few days to figure it out. It seems to me you probably want to be, like, ready when that happens. Although, um, so, I mean, Howard, uh, his questions are obviously good ones and ones worth considering. But you're sort of saying also have a plan, you know, other than, Having some water wings and a nose plug in your closet, you want to have a plan for what happens when that how, like how you get, how you get people to high ground, or where the high ground is. Um, you talked about that Norwich Dam failure, and uh, people were just scurrying all around um, during that event, and some actually went into uh, potential hazardous area where they should have you know made a left instead of a right. Uh, one of the more interesting things I found out recently was. Uh, uh, a dam that failed in the 1800s at uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. And the early warning system there was uh, there was a, a person who was uh, 
at the dam, um, and he was the dam uh, manager, and he saw it failing, and he sent somebody out on horseback, just like Paul Revere, to warn the people downstream that um, the water was coming. Okay. Well, hopefully we've advanced beyond that. Uh, maybe a reverse 911 call. Um, our former mayor in West Hartford, Scott Slifka, did wonderful ones. I've collected them all on a flash drive. So, Art, let's talk about this. First of all, I'm guessing, but maybe I'm wrong. He just said, uh, Dennis just said hurricanes. I, I sort of assume that dams fail in the spring, right? You got snow melt, you got rain, you know. So, in Connecticut, um, spring rain, spring freshet, really, we don't have enough snow to, to really um, create enough water to to test the dams, except for the, maybe the ones on the Connecticut River, and there's really only one in Connecticut on the Connecticut River, and then the ones on the Housatonic River. So those I've seen come up during the spring. But for the most part, um, we've had dam failures in every month of the year mm. in Connecticut. So we had like a big rainfall last night. That's the kind yep. of thing? Yeah, that's the kind of thing. We actually, we have an alert system, and so there was a spot in Oxford that got two and a half inches in one hour last night, mm. according to the NextEd radar. Um, so... So we were kind of watching that, and certainly that amount of rainfall is a hundred year. It was a hundred year rainfall event, but it doesn't cause a hundred year flood because it only happened for one hour, and, and those drainage areas were bigger, and it didn't didn't really uh, it wasn't a, a it wasn't a hazard to those dams. So Art, I would imagine one of the problems with the 2014 policy, where you start to put the onus on the dam owner, is that the dam owner, uh, in the other sense, might say, well. I'm busy. I don't know. I don't have time to inspect my crappy dam every two years. I don't have money. It's too expensive. Go away. Go away, Deep. Does that happen? That does happen. Um, for the most part, um, we got a lot of positive feedback, and a lot of people have done it, done their inspections. Um, the DEP, DEP, sorry, I've been here for a long time, and it was the DEP for a lot longer than, yeah. So uh, one of the things that does happen is um, we did remain, we did keep some ability for the DEP to go out and inspect the dams ourselves if they weren't getting inspected. So if somebody just couldn't do it, slash, um, I guess the, the you know, a private property owner, a little old man or woman who, who didn't have the money to do it, um, you know, we could actually go out and inspect the dam, um, put a uh, lien on their property for the cost of our inspection and, and collect that at the end of the day. Um, we don't... Um, want to do that, but but certainly that gives us the ability to at least make sure all the dams are looked at. Right. Dam safety is like they say in detective movies. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. <laughs> That's all right. right. So uh, let's take a little break here. We've got more to say about dams and particularly, excuse me, how to get um, hydroelectric power occasionally out of a dam. We're going to talk about something called the Archimedes screw, which turns out not to be as exciting as I initially thought it would be, but it's also important. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, the Lara Croft of dams, and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our intern, Ashley Taylor. Amanda Fish can't swim past the Higginum Dam. The part of Bill Curry was played by Archimedes Screw. On tomorrow's show, Colin and Richard Dawkins talk about evolution, religion, and family feud. And now...
Back to Colin. Not really a family feud. That was Richard Dawson. But um, all right. So uh, we're going to talk uh, here towards the end. We were talking about dams. We got a dam all-star team uh, in here. Um, everybody you'd want in Connecticut, really. Uh, Stephen Gephardt, uh, who's the supervising fisheries biologist for Deep uh, uh, in, the, in their fisheries division. Howard Epstein, emeritus professor in civil and environmental engineering at UConn, the guy who brought us this idea. Art Christian, supervising civil engineer, also with Deep uh, and specifically with their dam safety unit. Um, so, you know, Steve, there are, are and we're, you're about to meet somebody who is um, working hard right now to exploit the hydroelectric power of at least one dam uh, here in Connecticut. We'll tell you about him in just a second. But Steve, um, there are, you know, people, people sort of like dams and ponds, I think, for two reasons. One of them is they're just part of the landscape here in Connecticut. You know, we like our ponds. We like the way things look. We don't want to change it. But the other reason is you look at it and you think, well, once upon a time, a lot of these things were turning wheels, you know, as we said before, for twine or cotton or, or, or whatever. Um, on the other hand, I assume that doesn't mean that every dam would make a good hydroelectric site. Well, I agree entirely. I, what we asked these small dams to do in the past was to turn wheels really at, for small periods of time. A lot of time, these old mills just worked during the spring when there was a lot of water and, and they were off doing other things in the summer. Um, I have to say that most of the dams that are generating electricity in the state of Connecticut now have been retrofitted. They're these old mill dams. I thought for a moment of how many dams in Connecticut were built specifically for hydroelectricity, and I could only come up with four. Hmm. Chapaug, Stevenson, Rainbow, and Scotland. I can't think of anything more. Is Lake Candlewood pumped? Well, yeah, that's part of the Chapaug system. We could talk about that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. We're kind of getting in the weeds of dams, though, when we do that. (laughs) Uh, uh, So anyway, the point is that um, a lot of these small dams really don't have the hydro potential um, that they do. It it costs a lot of money to retrofit turbines into these old dams, and the payback isn't that great. In order to make money off of hydro, you need two things. You need a lot of water and you need head. Uh, that is the the elevation of the uh, of the dam, and a lot of those our streams in Connecticut don't have that combination. There are a few, and there are developers who are working to exploit those sites. Which is a perfect segue into our conversation now with Armin Merlet, a partner in Canton Hydro. Um, Canton Hydro is uh, seeking to do something with the Collinsville Dam, where I believe there was. Well, actually, why not let Armin tell it? Armin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us uh, what it is you're doing in Collinsville. Well, so um, Collinsville, uh, many uh, listeners might uh, know Collinsville from the Collins Axe Factory, which really was a thriving industrial manufacturing plant uh, for many uh, decades. Uh, And the plant had two got its energy from two dams, really, the upper Collinsville Dam and the lower Collinsville Dam. And since 66, these dams are just relics of the Industrial Revolution and are, as Steve points out, um, a barrier to the aquatic habitat swimming upstream. Um, Now, um, before, you know, I would like to emphasize that when we talk about 
breaching dams and taking dams down and uh, in order to improve the aquatic habitat, we really have to have a bigger discussion, which is where does the energy come from? Where should it come from? Where will it come from? And I think we need to have a public debate on the energy future here, because if you look at if you look at the uh, energy uh, sources in Connecticut, you'll notice that about half of the energy comes from fossil fuels, and we all know the problems that come from that. And the other half about is from nuclear power. And nuclear power at the first glance, uh, at first glance seems cheap and clean, but there are many, many hidden costs. Right, including the aforementioned zebra mussels. So we want you know, we have aquatic safety uh, and, and safety for our fish, but there are, everything has a price. So Armin, just before we run out of time, how close are you to being able to do something in Collinsville? So we are actually very close. We just on Tuesday submitted our ZREC bit, which is a program by the state of Connecticut to um, encourage the development of uh, renewable energy. And if we win the bid, um, if our bid clears, then uh, there's really only one major roadblock, which is the FERC relicensing or the reissuance of the license, which we anticipate in uh, February. And then theoretically we could start construction. And, and so, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's hard to express this in layman's terms or terms that I would understand anyway, but I mean, in terms of when you think about how much electricity a dam like that could produce under optimal circumstances, Armin, what are you th thinking about? Is there a way you can kind of render this in a way that, I don't know, X percent of the electricity consumed by Canton or something? Well, so to make it sort of accessible, the, we're targeting 4.25 gigawatt hours annually. And that translates into roughly 485 Connecticut homes electricity. So that's a significant amount of uh, electricity that we can get out of this dam. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a saving of about three metric tons of carbon footprint, of, of carbon dioxide. Right, which is part of that conversation that, that I think you very uh, justifiably uh, want to have. Uh, very quickly, because our time is limited and there's a lot of things we need to cover here at the end. But very quickly, Steve, um, since your concern is at least partly fish, uh, obviously if you've got turbines turning or anything like that, you get a little worried, you wonder what's going to happen to any fish that are trying to get past that dam. Uh, how does that all shake out for you? Well, so the first thing, when, when Armin says they begin to construct next year perhaps, he's not constructing the dam. The dam already exists and the dam is already having its impact. Now, when he undergoes FERC relicensing, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission relicensing, both ourselves and the, and the federal government has the authority to put certain conditions upon that. And we've been working with Armin and his team to make sure that there's effective upstream fish passage at the dam, effective downstream fish, way, fish passage at the dam, which means the fish don't go through the turbines and get chewed up, upstream uh, and downstream passage for American eel, protection of mussels, uh, water quality. So there's a whole host of things that will be incorporated in that FERC license that make sure that the aquatic resources of this area are going to be not only preserved, but also enhanced. 
So the, we want to talk about another project here, um, and I, I mentioned it already twice now, the Archimedes Screw, which sounds like something you maybe would uh, be taught in Howard Epstein's uh, engineering classes at UConn. You want to take a crack at explaining what an Archimedes Screw is? It's the first I heard of it today. All right. Then our, <laughs> our, our Steve will take a crack at it. Well, the, the um, I've been involved with it because it's um, it, there's a lot of fish components to it. Um, Archimedes developed this this screw back. He's uh, ancient Greek, and he developed a screw to raise water out of a, a of a canal and into an aqueduct. Mm-hmm. You turn this big screw, and it just lifts the water up. Modern hydro developers have have reversed that, and instead of using it to lift water, they're actually using descending water to spin that screw, and that screw uh, ends up being your 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 turbine that turns the generator. This has been used, it specializes in small sites. You would never put one of these on the Connecticut River or the Housatonic. But it's good for small sites. And um, the landed gentry in, in the UK have been using it at their castles. They actually tear out these old Francis turbines and put in an Archimedes screw. So this one in Meriden, it's on the second dam on the Quinnipiac River, Hanover Pond. Mm. Uh, New England Hydro Company put the first... Archimedes screw generator in North America there, and it's now operating. And the nice thing from, for us in fisheries about this is that without the typical propeller-type gen, uh, turbine, it's, it's safe for fish because fish enter the screw, and there's no, there's no really slicing part. They just follow the screw all the way down. So it's, it, it still has some issues that we're working with the developers on for the Quinnipiac River, but we don't have to worry about fish getting chewed up in a turbine. I mean, Art, I would assume one good thing anyway about people looking at dams in terms of hydropower from your point of view is a, a, uh, a dam that's being used that way is a dam that's being watched very carefully. That's right. Uh, yeah, they're both being watched very carefully and there's now a, a, a monetary stream for, for taking care of it, um, which, which a lot of the problem is that when there's no money coming in, it's hard for a, a private homeowner or, or you know, a entity to to fund repairs and, and keep monitoring it and do those EAPs that Professor was talking about and um, and do the maintenance that's needed. All right. Monetary stream. I see what you did there. Um, here's John from Avon. Has a question. Maybe he'll stump the experts. Maybe he won't. Hi, John. Hey there, Colin. Uh, yeah, I had a question um, on sensors, uh, putting, you know, have a crumbling infrastructure and whether or not that's in the works or it's already being done to, make, you know, find out how they're holding up. And also, if that would work for um, fish, the fish as well, to find out which ones are getting through, so you know, and which ones aren't, maybe just so there's not a case of uh, Schadenfreude. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Anybody want to take that sensors on dams? I mean, that's, he's sort of um, talking about a self-inspecting dam, basically. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, certainly, um, Connecticut doesn't lend itself to that quite as much. Um, a visual inspection is probably as good as we're going to need. Some of the bigger dams with um, that are made out of concrete that would work the best on those things but those are usually done um, and there's quite a quite a significant factor of safety on those um, so it might not be the best point a lot for that. of those concrete dams have them built in mm. you know um, Howard we're almost out of time here but one thing I didn't ask you at the beginning of this conversation is I would imagine dams are rather rather hard to prop- to repair if they have a structural problem I mean You've got water backed up behind them. How do, how do people work on dams? Um, sometimes you have to dewater the uh, area behind, and that creates all sorts of other problems. Um, sometimes you can fail a dam by dewatering it too quickly. 
So um, uh, not, not an easy thing to do. Um, we have a big dam repair going on in East Windsor right now in Broad Brook, and they just drew down the pond before the, this rain is coming. So uh, they're struggling with this very thing right now. Right. So you want to fix that dam, but it's also environmentally a shock to the system from your point of view if yeah. they're doing anything. And we've got to make sure they don't strand fish. When they draw it down, there's fish and mussels. Right. Exactly. All right, so we are almost out of time. I don't know. Does anybody have – well, I mean, Art, uh, this might have actually made people nervous, this show. I mean, people maybe should be watchful, but I would imagine – I don't know. How nervous well, should they how, how worried should they be? Um, certainly, you know, if you see something, say something. But um, I think one of the things that uh, – we do have a pretty good handle on it now, and, and it's getting better all the time in terms of what dams have been inspected and, and getting back to the ones that haven't in – um, making sure that everything's been looked at fairly recently, um, and if there is something wrong, uh, moving forward to to make it safe. Um, and I either. would advise people to go to the deep website. There's an awful lot of information there. Right. Thank you. Um, yes, that's an excellent yeah. suggestion. Go and to the deep website. If anybody website. has a dam they think they might want to remove, have them contact me. We'll put them in touch with some people who may be able to help. And just remember, I mean, like a, a, a babbling brook is really great too. I mean, I go to. Cotton Hollow and Glastonbury all the time where they used to actually mill cotton and stuff like that. The Nayog River goes where Roaring Brook goes spilling by there. And it's wonderful. So, I mean, ponds are great, but so are babbling brooks. All right. So um, I don't know when you're listening to this show. We're doing it live on Wednesday. Uh, and uh, we just got word this morning, sadly enough, that Fats Domino died. He was 89 years old. So he got a good bite of the apple. So we thought we'd go out with playing Going to the River, one of Fats' songs. It seemed to kind of fit. <laughs> <laughs>